wanted to share. All right, well, let's jump into Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah 29. And, uh, but first, before we do, let's, let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your incarnate word, your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would help us tonight and uh, help us to, to cultivate a heart that, that is um, truly in awe of you and deeply loyal and submissive to you. I pray, Father, that you would protect us from uh, many of these warnings that we see here in the book of Isaiah and, and protect us from your judgments by your Spirit. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, so just a little review. Isaiah, the main point of Isaiah is that the Assyrians are on the way to judge Israel. And so the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel, which had split in a civil war during the time of Rehoboam, that's Solomon's son, they both were afraid. They're afraid of the coming Assyrians. Now we, looking back, because we're in the future, we know what happened. We know that the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom in the 700s B.C., but did not destroy the southern kingdom, that God stopped them and saved the southern kingdom, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and uh, um, some small other uh, tribes. And so um, in 586, though, 100 or so years later, the Babylonians come and destroy the southern kingdom and carry off uh, many of the people into exile in Babylon, and Israel is no more. It's finished until the Persians are raised up and they destroy the Babylonians and the Persian emperor Cyrus lets the Jews go back home and they rebuild the temple and there's a bit of a revival under Ezra. Um, and, but then more apostasy, they fall away and eventually the apostasy is so bad that God stops sending prophets and stops speaking to them. And the last prophet is Malachi and around that, that time period. And so you get another 400 years before Jesus comes with a revival under John the Baptist and Jesus. And um, so that's sort of a quick overview. Where we are here is the time period waiting for the Assyrians to come. And so the, the church, the people of God, the covenant people of God, Israel, they are tempted to, to turn to political saviors, turn to um, man to save them, and, and that's what they continue to do and, and don't turn to God. And uh, that's a good lesson for us here in the United States as, as we seem to be uh, headed more and more down a road of apostasy, which means judgment. We have to make sure that we just repent and turn back to the Lord and not seek um, salvation from man, whether that be individual man or collective man in the state or political man. We have to turn to God. So that's the, the big theme here. And we'll start in chapter 29, verse 1. And cover, cover a little bit of chapter 29 and 30 today if we can. And uh, that clock is not right. Is, is that clock right? It's 6. Is that right? Yeah, 647. Good. Now I have a clock there. Um, ah, verse 1. Ah, Ariel, Ariel. That's a name for Jerusalem. It, it might mean belonging to the Lord, but no one is really sure what it means. But it's some sort of affectionate, intimate term for Israel, and it's repeated twice, Ariel, Ariel. It's also the name of the, the uh, mermaid, right? The little mermaid, right? The city where David encamped, add year to year. Let the feasts run their round, yet I will distress Ariel. 
and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. You can see it's a little mysterious what it means. And I will encamp against you all around you. This is the Lord encamping. That means besieging and attacking Jerusalem. And will besiege you with towers. And I will raise siege works against you. And you will be brought low from the earth you shall speak. And from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. Meaning they will be eradicated. And all that will be left is a, a quiet little whisper from the dust. And from the dust your speech shall whisper. So this is quite um, a, a judgment and a woe and lamentation on Jerusalem. And it begins, though, I think it's worth mentioning. It begins with, ah, it's an emotional interrogative. God has, uh, his heart is tied to Jerusalem because of his covenant and he, unlike us, is able to pour out his wrath and have uh, compassion and pity at the same time. And he says, Ariel, Ariel, he says it two times. And can anyone think of other places in Scripture where God speaks affectionately to a person or to a people and says it two times? The high priestly prayer? Yeah. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's, this is an echo of this very same prophecy. It's in Matthew 22, verse 37. Very good, Jordan, by the way. That was quick. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. That's essentially the point of Isaiah, that God loves Jerusalem. God is faithful to his covenant. He's going to keep his promises. He wishes to save them. All they have to do is repent, and yet they won't repent, and uh, they're not willing and so you see that in the time of Isaiah, you see it all the way through the Old Testament, you see it in the time of Jesus as well, the um, unwillingness of Jerusalem. And that's a major theme of, in the Bible that a lot of people really miss. It's a major theme in the Bible. And so the judgment comes on, on Jerusalem in order to make way for what? Why is Jerusalem judged? To make way for? Yeah, the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, which is not just the Gentiles, but the Jews and the Gentiles united together in one. And that's a major theme in the Bible, and it's predicted right here. Look at verse uh, 3. See that right there? No, verse 1. It says, Jerusalem is the city where David encamped. And then in verse 3, it says, I will encamp against you. So David, many years earlier, we're in the time of Isaiah here, um, Many years after the Civil War, many years after David, David had encamped around Jerusalem, besieged Jerusalem, and destroyed Jerusalem in his lifetime. You remember what Jerusalem used to be called? Salem. And do you remember the names of the people that ran the city? The Jebusites, that's right. But if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, um, the high priest king Melchizedek, he was the priest of Salem, of Jerusalem. And he worshiped the Lord. It was a Christian city in the book of Genesis. But by the time that David had come on the scene and Joshua, it had apostatized. And so David, who is a type of Christ, comes to the Jerusalem and destroys it and besieges it in order to make it into the city of David, to make it into the new Jerusalem. And so in his life, in the destruction of Jerusalem and in the, the raising up of a new Jerusalem, he's a type of exactly what Jesus would do, the son of David, to Jerusalem as well. And it's prophesied right here. It says God's going to encamp around Israel just as David 
encamped around Israel. I think that's pretty poetically interesting. Um, Moving down to verse 8. Now this is a word to the enemies of Jerusalem. As when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating. Have you ever had a dream like that? Mm, this what a delicious feast. And awakes with his hunger, not satisfied. You wake up and you're like, ah, oh, and you remembered you're on a diet. <laughs> right? Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and awakes faint with his thirst, not quenched. I, those, I love really good, like, action-packed dreams where I'm the hero and I'm kicking butt and, like, everything's awesome and things are going well. And then I wake up and, like, ah, life's still boring. Like, <laughs> it's disappointing. It's disappointing. That's, oh, them Unisom dreams will get you. They're weird. <clears throat> and so it says, So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. That's interesting. So you want to know what the enemies of God are like? They're like somebody that dreams about a big feast, but then they wake up, ah, and they're starving. Or they, they dream about, um, you know, quenching their thirst, and they wake up thirsty. They're, in other words, they can dream about devouring Jerusalem, and it, it's a really wonderful dream to them, and they're all excited and satisfied by it, but then they wake up, and they weren't successful. They're disillusioned, and they missed the mark. And I think that's a great um, prophecy for us today. There's a lot of people in our world today that are enemies of the church. The federal bureaucracy is an enemy of the church. The Department of Education is an enemy of the church. The UN, the IRS, the FBI, we could keep going. Um, There's a lot of enemies to the church, Um, and they dream about feasting on the church. They dream about devouring and, and, and gobbling us up. They dream of persecuting the church. You know, persecution right now for Christians is at an all-time high. There's more persecution that's taken place in this century um, than, uh, than all of the years put together before. And uh, in places like Korea and Nigeria and Somalia and Canada and Louisiana. You know, many places. Iran as well, obviously. Um, But at the end of the day, the enemies of God are going to wake up from their their dream and find out that they weren't successful. So the the worst they can do to you is really just dream, right? I think that's something to remember because what does Israel do? They are tempted by the persecution, by the pressures to turn to their idols. The pressures reveals their idols, and out of fear, the fear compels them to trust in man instead of trusting in God. And fear can do that. Have you ever been afraid of something? And because of the fear, it forced you into making bad decisions. It forced you into trusting in something other than Jesus, and that fear revealed your idol. It revealed the the one thing you couldn't let go of. Yeah, it, and, and, and I don't know how much y'all deal with fear, but fear is a revealer, and fear can tempt you, instead of trusting in Jesus and doing the hard thing, to trust in your own devices, trust in man, trust in your strategies. And that's exactly what the fear of persecution does for Israel. It forces them into the arms of Egypt, which we're going to see in a second. All right, let's move on to 
um, verse 13 of chapter 29. Why is he going to judge Jerusalem? Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Does that sound familiar? Y'all have heard that expression before? And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So see if y'all can do this. What are the two crimes? What are the two sins that they've committed that he's judging them for? So um, they're phonies. They're fake. But where, where are their mouths honoring God and their lips drawing near to God? Where does that happen at? It's a church. Yeah, it's a church. So these people that are going to hell and are being judged by God go to church. They're church folk. It's church folk. It's the religious folks of the day. And they um, go to church. They attend church. And they sing. And they go through the liturgies. And they profess Christ. And they, and they you know, say all sorts of wonderful things about him. But the sin is that their hearts aren't in it. Their hearts aren't in worship at all. Right? Does that sound familiar to you? It might sound like you, right? It might, like, it might sound like us. Have you, have you ever been in worship and your heart's just not in it? Yeah, for sure. I know that's true. I mean, I see faces um, which usually reveal what's going on. Not always, but, you know, we're, flesh, we're people. We're, we're, we have weakness of the flesh, and we're tired, and we're sick, and, you know, frustrated, and all of those things. But we do have to remember that God judged Jerusalem for phony, heartless worship, going through the motions, you know, doing the, and, and after you've gone to church for a long time, that can really happen, can it? You go, you do the routines, you know the songs, you know the, the liturgies, you know when to sit and when to stand up and when to raise your hands and all of those things, and you could really just, you could really put on a, a, put on a show, couldn't you? And so I think we ought to pray when you go to church, think about that. Pray and ask God, help my heart to be in this. I want to mean this. I don't want to be a phony. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to um, make beautiful sounds with my melodious voice and not mean it, right? I think that's super important. So what's the, uh, what's the second crime? Wait. Yeah, if you don't mean it, yeah, no. <laughs> So if I, I don't mean it, so I cannot sing and be dour and be miserable. No, what you should do, that's a great point, is, Lord, I'm going to praise you because you are worthy and you demand it. Even, even the rocks would cry out if I don't, but my heart is, seems far from you this morning, and I repent of that, and I would like to ask for your help so that you can help my heart match my, my mouth, right? And music can help you. I think that's one of the points of music is to help you with your emotions, help you with your attentiveness, help you with focusing, right? All right, you don't, you don't want to uh, space out in worship. You want to be ready. So when worship begins, think about it this way. If you are 10 minutes late, that's, that's not helpful to, getting, to having your heart in the right place. You understand what I mean? Think about what we're doing spiritually. What are we doing? We are entering into the presence of the Lord together. He says where two or three are gathered, there he is in the midst of us. And the book of Hebrews says we're entering the new Jerusalem. Do you believe that's true? The book of Hebrews says that the angels are there with us. Do you believe that's true? You got to think, ponder on these things, meditate on these things. Do you believe Jesus is with us on Sunday morning? And as we enter in, 
you ought to, you ought to consider your, uh, your behavior, your decorum, uh, your, the way you dress. All of these things can help if you really do believe we have come and we have gathered to worship the king. And so what do we do at the very beginning? All stand for the call to worship. Why are we standing? How, what would it look like if we all just sit there? All right, we're entering into worship. No, we stand in honor of the king. That's, what, that's how we show honor in, well, any society, really. All right, we stand in honor of the king. And, um, and we raise our hands to the king. Right? That's us. We're praising him. And he's, uh, he's among us. You don't want to be doing this if, you don't even, if you're not even, you know, you're just screwing off and you're not even concerned, right? And then we hear him, uh, he speaks to us through the word. He's ordained that he would speak to his people through the preaching of the word. You know, uh, you know I don't like it any more than you do, but that's what he did, what he said, right? And, um, and, and we are, can be consecrated by that and, and transformed by that. But you've got to be in it. You've got to really be in it. So pray and ask him to help you to be in it. You, you can't conjure this. It's a gift. And so I think you, you need to pray for it and at least think about it, right? Right? That's why we, we dress up generally for church. We don't dress down for church. We dress up for church because we're gathering before a king, right? And we're adults and other reasons, right? Um, that's why we don't dress too fancy, because we're not trying to put the, the um, focus on us. You know what I mean? That's why we um, behave a certain way. It's because we are come to, to worship him. And, but we want to make sure that our, our hearts are right before him. And, um, and we need his help with all of that. What's the second crime? Do you see it there? Anybody want to list it? What's the second crime that he's judging them for? It's right there in verse 13. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. You see that there? So what are they doing? They're adding to the Bible or subtracting to it. They're replacing God's Bible with man's traditions, man's commandments. So why in, in chapter 29 is God um, going to destroy Jerusalem? Phony church services and preaching um, fake commandments or not preaching the actual commandments traditions and phony religiosity sound familiar oh yeah it's the american church it's probably the two greatest sins of the american church well underneath autonomy which these are just subcategories of autonomy um, look at mark chapter 7 verse 1 this is what jesus says it's the same thing he says now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So they saw Jesus' disciples weren't washing their hands ceremonially. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. So there's definitely a lot of uh, hand-washing rules out there in society. Um, but we don't have any hand-washing rules in church. Maybe the, uh, what was the, the holy sacrament of, uh, of the uh, Co church of, of Kovitstan? What was the, the, the hand sanitizer, right? <gasps> I noticed he had not washed his hands. That, maybe that's an analogy. I don't know. 
And they, you see, but they are holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, I wanted to, you to, to note that Jesus explicitly and publicly does not wash his hands like they say that you have to do. What is he doing? He is breaking social norms. He is being, in, in what they would say, rude, insensitive, proud, arrogant. Who does he think he is? He's a troublemaker. He's publicly not washing his hands in order to have a confrontation with the Pharisees, but also because he's trying to teach the actual Bible, not, not simply go along with the traditions of the elders. And there is a place in the Christian church to publicly violate fake Christianese laws. We should, we should publicly break those laws. We should blaspheme the gods of tradition, um, even if it gets us in trouble with church folk, um, right? That's something we should be careful to do. Don't do what is being elevated to the level of God, um, God's law, and, and, and do only what God says. And it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Hey, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's a quote from Isaiah 29. So we see the point of it. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Anytime you add to the Bible, you're not getting more holy, you're getting less holy. You're replacing God's law with man's law. And it is a sin that God brings down great judgment. All right, any, any thoughts or questions on that before we go to the next chapter? All right, chapter 30. Here we see a continued theme of Israel. Instead of turning to Jesus and just repenting, they go to politics and they look for political so- solutions with their alliances with Egypt. Chapter 30, verse 1. Ah, stubborn children. Is everyone there? Y'all found it? He does still call them children, but they're stubborn. They're rebellious, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine. So let's look at, let's look at the list as we go through. What are these stubborn children doing that, he is, that the Lord is angry with? They're executing plans, but they're not God's plans. So they're making plans. They're engaging in strategies and tactics but they're not the ones that God has ordained. And that's very important. God not only ordains the, the ends, but also the means. He tells you what to do, and he tells you how to do it. And what else are they doing? Who make an alliance, but not of my spirit. So two things. They're carrying out their plans, their strategies, their tactics, their approach. And it's not God's, not God's way. And they're making covenants. Um, but it's not of, of my spirit. And that word making an alliance there is literally pouring a libation. Y'all know what a libation is? It's the fancy word for a bourbon, a strong drink, a libation. And, uh, and in, pagan, in pagan religion, they would offer, they would tip, tip a 40 in the honor of the, of the pagan god. That's where that comes from. And... Uh, they would pour that out. Now, God commanded the offering of strong drink in, in his worship as well. 
um, which is one of the reasons why we know it's not a sin to make and drink bourbon, which is, would be a strong drink. And it's even used in sacramental purposes in the Old Testament. Um, but they did it in pagan rituals as well. They would pour libations with the gods. And so when, when one person would make a, another covenant with another person, they would very often, they would pour the libation at the threshold of the house, for example, or in a, in a covenanting ceremony. So we put a ring on, they would pour a drink, right? But what it, what it symbolizes is that you're not only in covenant with one another, you're also in covenant with the gods of that, of that people. Like every covenant, it's between you and the other person and God. That's why in, in uh, weddings, we, you know, we make mention that God is our witness, right? Or in, court, in courtrooms, we swear on the Bible because every covenant is between humans and, and God's involved. And God says that he enforces those covenants. But here they're making demonic covenants, but not with the Holy Spirit. It's with evil spirits that they may add sin to sin. And look at who they're making a covenant with, with Egypt. Verse 2, who set out to go down to Egypt. Now, this is especially bad because that's where they were saved from, right? They're going back to their slave masters for salvation. And that means the gods of Egypt, by the way. Without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, their once slave master. They now covenant with him and his gods to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt, exclamation point. So their fear is on them, and their fear drives them to make covenants, practical covenants, right? Pragmatic. I mean, Egypt was a superpower. Egypt, if anyone was going to be able to protect them from Assyria, it's going to be Egypt, right? This makes sense. We need to have an alliance with Egypt and with their gods. And uh, what are the two examples or the two manifestations of their their stubbornness and their rebellion and their idolatry. The first one is they make plans, but not the plans that God guides them. They won't listen to what God's saying to do. Have you ever done that? Or know someone that does that? Right? When you make a plan, a business plan, a business model, um, a fundraising plan, a strategy, we had a lot of plans as we built this particular building. You know, when you plan to get married or plan a career or plan your education, how, how does God typically guide you? How can you get guidance from God? Okay, a multitude of counselors, the Bible says. You want to get a lot of counselors. What kind of counselors? Blind, ones that blindly affirm you like a 13-year-old on Instagram. Like, you go, girl, that's great. You do that. No, you don't want blind affirmation. You want someone with a backbone that doesn't have a use for you, that's not a flatterer, right? Someone that's honest. You might, any specific counselors that God gives that you should at least put on your list? Elders, parents, pastors. Very good, yeah. That's good. Um, Yeah, multitude of counselors. How else does God guide us? The The Bible is the primary means of guidance. Right. <laughs> he speaks to Aaron directly. Oh, does the Spirit guide us? Does the Spirit illuminate our minds? But is the Spirit and the Bible ever separated? No, no. All right. 
Wait, what? An open door. Sometimes an open door is uh, (laughs) (laughs) on the eighth floor, right? On the eighth story. Um, How did God guide them in their day and age? Well, that was, you know, that was with Moses in the wilderness. But in Isaiah's day, how would they seek guidance from the Lord? They would go ask Isaiah. That's right. That's not the same today. But a multitude of counselors, the Bible, um, wisdom. You're still going to the written, yeah, the written prophet. That's right. But what about this uh, very bad habit in a lot of churches where someone says, I feel like God is leading me to do this. Or God wants me to do this, but they but no they haven't gotten advice, they haven't gotten counsel, they've been f- perhaps even ag- gone out of their way to avoid certain people's advice, and they don't know what the Bible has to say about it, and yet they're absolutely certain on it. It's a very that's a very bad place to be in. You don't want to be in that place. Um, there is a lot to say about guidance. I have a whole series on how God guides us, and so that would be very good to listen to. But don't be the person that says, I feel like God is leading me to this. If you haven't taken um, advantage of the normal ways that God leads us and guides us. And if you think that you had a dream and you now know who you're going to marry— you know, I had a dream, this, I actually heard this story from a few days ago, that someone had a dream, no one in our church, and, uh, <laughs> and they asked God for a sign, and God has given them three signs, and so now they know who they're going to marry. Well, yeah, and, and uh, the person that they believe they're going to marry is like way out of their league. Right. Um, <laughs> that's how it always works, right? <laughs> it's like a... You need a, a miracle. <laughs> no, don't, don't be that person. Don't be that person. Um. <laughs> so, some important doctrines regarding guidance. Just real quick. There is an absolute union between the Spirit and the Word of God. If you separate them, if you think the Spirit is leading you, or the Bible clearly says, no, it's not the Spirit of God. Or if you think that... Um, well, you cannot separate the Word and the Spirit. The Spirit, is, the Word is called the sword of the Spirit. And if you separate them, you're going to get in trouble. And um, no matter what decision you have to make, the Bible has something to say about it. Um, it doesn't give us every single detail because God's not raising robots. He's raising kings and queens. He wants us to exercise our wisdom and our biblical intuition, and, and learn how to lead and to exercise dominion rightly. We're not programmed machines. So it doesn't give us every single thing, um, but it does say something about everything. And so um, you need to make sure that you are attentive to the Bible. You say, well, Pastor Brandon, I don't know that much about the Bible. I've, n- I've never heard anyone ever say that before. Um, but let's just theoretically think maybe you, you, maybe you would say that. I don't know that much about the Bible. How am I supposed to know what to do? Right? Then what do you do? <laughs> this is a little, so Genesis 1. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, First, let's start in some literacy classes. <laughs> let's start, we'll take a vocab class, some literacy classes. 
you know, we'll learn some grammar, some syntax. You know, we're going to really try to increase your verbal IQ so that you can start from the verse one and go all the way through and figure it out. Or there's a quicker way. You should definitely do that. That's the reason why I have this school is so that we're doing that mainly. But there's a really quick way to do this. Ask, ask, some, ask people that know the Bible better than you. All right, good. Now, um, let's, do, let's make some applications here. This should be fun. We got 10 minutes. God judged them for making political alliances with foreigners and foreign gods to save them from their political troubles instead of just repenting and trusting him. All right. Do we have any applications from that to our nation's foreign policy? Should, should our nation pour out libations and covenant and get into entangled covenants with pagan nations? No, we should not. Our nation should not join in political alliances with pagan nations. All right. We've, we've blown this one. We've blown this one. All right. It doesn't necessarily mean we can't do trade and business, but what I do think a pouring of a libation and making an alliance or a covenant can be described as making an entangled alliance. Meaning when you get in a fight, you need some fight with you? Yeah, that's a covenant. Not necessarily, uh, I don't think this is a, a condemnation of contracts with limited terms and conditions. Um, and, and you're not necessarily um, in bed with the, the other nation. But um, entangling alliances with non-Christians can be very, very dangerous. And I don't think we should do that, generally speaking. Uh, not with Israel, not with China, not with Turkey, or any other pagan nation. We shouldn't be um, getting into entangled alliances with them. Right? But what if the Holy Spirit leads me to do it? see part you know (laughs) rewind tape and uh, listen again but what if what if it's a really hard decision you see pastor brandon you don't realize we've really we've really had to wrestle with this decision and you don't know how hard this has been and we've really prayed about it and you you don't have the same pressures that we have I mean, you, you have plenty of money, and you have your health. You don't have this pressure. We had to make this deal. We had to make this covenant with, and get all entangled with these pagans. No, you have to trust God. You have to trust God. Um, and this is why, um, but, but Pastor Brandon, but Pastor Brandon, don't you want the school to grow bigger? We could, boy, you, Bailey, you know how fast we could have that fence? If we made a deal with the federal government, we can get that grant money. We can get that, uh, those vouchers. Oh, man. No strings attached, they say. No strings attached. We can get metal detectors. No strings attached. Oh, no. This is why we don't take money from the government. And, and we don't take money from any other evil thugs, bullies, and uh, infanticide maniacs infanticide committing maniacs that's not you don't take money from mob bosses or from the united states federal government right you don't do that and you certainly don't take a loan you don't take as a church i'm not talking about individuals necessarily i'm talking about a church a church can't get into an or a school can't get into an entangled alliance 
with a very, very powerful and unjust global empire, right? And you certainly don't want to take a loan. The Bible says that the borrower is slave to the lender. You don't want to be slave to an evil overlord, right? So that's why when COVID, when they were handing out that COVID money, the church was like, no, thank you. No, thank you. All right. No strings attached, though. We know better than that. All right. Now, this, of course, will get you called a super Christian, um, which all of you are called recently on Facebook, I might add. (laughs) Yeah, you should like that. Super Christians, kind of cultish. But (laughs) 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 this will this will get you called a super Christian or an ideologue. But you but uh, I don't know, it was an anonymous commenter. It was a it was a mom Um, (laughs) from Lafayette. This will get you called an ideologue. But um, you need to stand your ground on this. You don't marry non-Christians. Amen. Amen. You don't enter in. You don't get unequally yoked and you don't enter into complicated and tangling covenants with pagans. It's going to be bad for you. Okay. Um, I also believe there's an application here to immigration. Um, you know, I'm not an expert on immigration, but as a general principle, we should be inviting Christians in and not letting non-Christians in. That's what we should be doing. Do you want people that worship other gods to come in and to have citizenship and to get the vote and rule over you? No, no, this is common sense. What you want are Christians to come in who worship the actual God. I feel like this is common sense. This is common sense. Um, um, Do you want uh, um, to be on government welfare? There's another application of government welfare. If you're poor and you're needy, do you want to get money from the government? Or would it be better to get money from your family and the church? That's right. The the ministry of welfare is given to the family and the church, not to the guys with guns. They are the ministers of justice and vengeance. That's not who you want to be buying your Thanksgiving turkey. And and the church must do everything we can to help poor people so they don't have to be in an entangled covenant with evil overlords. And I I think our church does a pretty good job with that, although we don't have a, a ton of really poor people in our church. Just a few. Um, <clears throat> what about uh, any applications to the presidential primaries? You can, can you think of anything? There's a Hindu running for president. Do you want, we, we're a Christian nation, and we're about to have a, we, we're not about to, but theoretically, we could have a Hindu as our president. That's not a good sign for our country. That is... Uh, He's conservative, yeah. No. You don't want to, you, you don't want, it's practical, it's pragmatic. You don't want to enter into political alliances with pagans. Therefore, you don't want them to be your president. Like, it's, you see what I mean? You don't want them to be your president. Now, I'm not saying he wouldn't be better than the uh, deranged lunatic um, <laughs> that might be another alternative, but... I still don't pray at night, God, give us a Hindu as president. No, he worships false deities, demon gods. That's not what we want as a president. That's not who we want coming into our country, voting. That's not who we want to be our neighbors. We want it to be Christians. We want it to be Christians. I feel like that's common sense. 
Do, do what? No, no, not well, not in that sense, no. And I honestly, I don't, and I can, that's a good point. I don't care what color they are, right? I don't care how tall they are, what hairstyles they have. I don't care about their history, their heritage. I want them to worship the same God. Because if you make alliances with people, with other gods, it's not going to go well for you. In fact, it's going to go very bad for you. And we have some precedent here. We have three minutes to see the precedent. Um, uh, by the way, on the presidential prim- primaries, the Bible gives us the qualifications for civil authorities. It's in Exodus chapter 18, if you want to look it up. And one of them is the fear of the Lord. And the other one is a man. Um, and there's some other ones. Um, as in not a woman. And we still, yeah, we still <laughs> and we know the difference around here. Now, but what about this? What about entangling alliances Maybe not formally, but what about, like, your hashtag community? The, what, what's another word for a covenant? It's a bond, a bond. Who is it that you're bonded with? Who? <laughs> y'all make me have to edit this thing so much. <laughs> who is it? Who are your bros? Like, who are your sisters in Christ? Who are the people you're bonded to? If, if, you're, if you worship the Lord with strangers and you don't have accountability and you have no submission and you're not in bond with the, the community of Christians, but you are actually in bond with another community, though that's where your heart is. You're on your way to apostatizing. Um, you, are, you are having entangled alliances and bonds with pagans and it will eventually pull your heart away from Christ. If you ever want to know if you're going to be the one that apostatizes, all you have to do is look at your life and be like, you know what, all the people that I'm really close to and that I really feel like a bond with, I'm not saying you can't have friends in some sense that aren't Christians. And we all have family members that we're entangled with that aren't Christians. But I mean, your heart, where your heart is, if it's with a whole group of non-Christians, like the local bar or the volleyball club or whatever, then that's not a good sign. That's not a good sign for you. Um, and you need to you need to really think about this this for, this God forbidding His people to be in entangled alliances uh, with pagans, and uh, the same thing with business. Now, business is a little different because you're entering into contracts. A contract's not a bond or a covenant in the same exact way. And I wouldn't say that every business deal is a entangling covenant. Um, but you do have to be careful. It could get that way. It could definitely become an entangled covenant. And you don't want your family's future and your livelihood and your hopes and dreams. You don't want a pagan, you know, have all that power. You understand what I mean? Um, you don't want a pagan to be able to blow your life up. So you just keep your business. I mean, obviously, if you, if you cut hair, you can cut a non-Christian's hair. That's a contract. When they sit down, it's an informal contract. They're, you're going to cut hair. They're going to pay you. It's fine to do that because we are to do good to all men, right? We're to serve all men. But what you don't want to do is get into um, entangling alliances. And, I, and where the, exactly where you draw the line, I'm not sure, but something to be careful about, right? And the result is, if you do... Uh, Verse 5, everyone comes to shame. It will lead to shame. Um, And verse 6 and 7, 
is a picture, we don't have time, but it's a picture of them going back to Egypt with all their money and all their possessions and bringing it to the Egyptians. Do what? They brought it out of Egypt, and they, then they, they made alliances with Egypt and pagans, and it's all going right back to them. The, the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous, but when the righteous apostatize and they put their faith in, in man... They lose, they lose all their wealth. That's how it works. All right, y'all have a good evening.